Karachi is, is uh, again a truly fascinating you know case study and now you have a you know tripolar structure of power you know within Karachi uh, and again if you extend it to Sindh so uh, local bodies elections it entrenched the NQM uh, the general elections entrenched uh, the PTI which is again a magnificent sea change from the last 30 years because at a point in time in Karachi, you know, you, you, would, you would hear, you know, uh, the conventional wisdom that, you know, that there's no alternative to the NQM. So that changed radically in 2018. Uh, and of course, the PTI is, of course, the party in power at the federal level. But then you have uh, the People's Party, which is in power at the provincial level. And this, you know, tripolar structure uh, and power game, uh, you know, determines why Karachi continues to be in a mess even today. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. We've been hearing about the 18th Amendment, local governments in Pakistan and issues in places like Karachi and Balochistan for a long time. But it's very rare for people to deeply understand what's causing these cleavages and how does that shape and affect Pakistan's political economy. To talk about this topic today, I have with me Dr. Farhan Hanif Siddiqui, who is an associate professor at the Qaeda Azam University in Islamabad and has done extensive research on this topic. Dr. Siddiqui, welcome to Pakistanomy. Thank you very much, Uzair. I'm very privileged and honored to be here. Thank you. I've read a lot of your research and some of your comments. They've been fascinating and insightful for me to understand what's going on in terms of ethnic issues and local government's issues. And I want to start with the 18th Amendment because it has been frequently talked about, especially in the last two years. And the expectation was that when the 18th Amendment was passed by the People's Party, that power, now that it had been dissolved to the provinces, would go further down. But that didn't really happen. We've had several local government um, legislations, elections, then the uh, legislation has been taken away, etc. And I read an article in which you were quoted and you said that, quote, the 18th Amendment provides opportunities for dominant ethnic groups and provinces to cement their power further through provincial autonomy, end quote. What do you mean by this and why do you think the provinces in Pakistan have not really devolved power in the spirit of the 18th Amendment so far? Uh, thank you, Wazir. I think uh, the 18th Amendment has been a you know, fascinating and a very important uh, landmark in Pakistan's political history. Uh, and before we uh, move on and speak about the impact that it has on Pakistan's political system and even on Pakistan's ethnic politics, uh, we need to speak about uh, the meta level of how it all came about. Because one of the important uh, variables when it comes to the 18th Amendment is uh, in understanding the political elite consensus that shaped uh, the 18th Amendment in the first place. Uh, so if you go back to the 90s and if you look at political elite, especially Nawaz Sharif and Benazir Bhutto, uh, you had... Uh, a, 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 a system and a condition where both political elites are more interested in dislodging the other whenever the other is in power. And that is why you have, uh, you know, governments uh, which are in power for two years, two year and a half. And of course, you have the Eighth Amendment in place, Article 
be, which makes it easier for any president to dislodge democratic governments. And though uh, it's a very self-serving nature of politics that both the PMLN, uh, Nawaz Sharif and Lopinazi uh, Bhutto are doing in the 1990s, uh, their self-serving nature of politics changes in the 2000s. Uh, and that comes around, uh, you know, to 2006 in the Charter of Democracy. And what happens here is that they realize that uh, whenever military regimes and military governments in power, uh, they tend to bring about their own favorite political elites, they tend to engineer their own political parties, and then they as representatives of the people lose out. Uh, so again, this political elite consensus, first in the shape of the Charter of Democracy, which again is an important development in Pakistan's political history, where they speak about uh, consolidating democracy, where they speak about consolidating federalism, that political elite consensus, consensus feeds into the passage of the, 18, of the 18th Amendment in 2010. And that also perhaps explains some of the reservations that PTI has from the 18th Amendment today because it was not part of the political elite consensus uh, that took place in 2010. So that is number one. So that political elite consensus is what we need now at the provincial level. So what happened uh, after the 18th Amendment is that provincial autonomy was instituted. You had 18 ministries devolved down to the provinces. But that, uh, so to speak, came into conflict with the local body system. And that, again, you know, comes down to the military regimes. Uh, you know, Musharraf, Zia, Ayub, um, look at all these three regimes in government, and you see uh, that what they rely on is a very, uh, you know, monistic conception of sovereignty, if you will, where you have a central government which bypasses provinces, which does not cater to provincial autonomy and goes straight down at the local bodies levels and then provides direct funding to these bodies, which empowers them and makes them, uh, you know, more resourceful and more powerful. And that is, that is what happened uh, under Musharraf and his local government system. So now, uh, uh, under Musharraf, you had a local government system in which where land and resources, taxation, even police, came under the ambit of the local government. And not only the local bodies were empowered, but another important facet of these uh, you know, changes by Musharraf was that even the, the bureaucracy was undermined. So now, for example, Karachi was a district and uh, the mayor uh, sat at the top and even the district commissioner was now subservient to the administrative authority of the mayor. And that is uh, and that is the basic contestation that we see today uh, after the 18th Amendment between the uh, you know, provinces down to the local bodies. Now, if you look at the local government acts of all four provinces, uh, KP, Sin, Balochistan, and even Punjab, what they have done now is that they've reverted uh, this Musharraf's local government system and placed more power in the hands of the provincial government. And uh, in sense, especially, the situation is more problematic uh, because you have a bipolar structure of power, if you will. So at the local level, you have a party, which is the NQM, which is well entrenched. And at the provincial level, you have the People's Party, which is dominated by the Sindhi ethnic group. And that is what feeds into the conflict at the provincial level. And it is very interesting. Uh, and this is again an important manifestation that after the 18th Amendment, uh, the argument over the dominance of Punjab 
or the Punjabi domination, that has become less salient compared to what it was, you know, in the immediate uh, years after partition or even uh, up until the time that the 18th Amendment was passed. So now because provinces are now uh, more empowered after the 18th Amendment, so the level of ethnic contestation has now become more horizontal. So it is now between the Sindhis and the Muhajirs in Sindh. It is about the Pashtuns and Hazaras in KP. It is about the Pashtuns in Baloch, in Balochistan. It is about between the Punjabis and, uh, you know, Siraikis in Punjab. Not that these conflicts were not there before. Uh, these are not novel manifestations. It's that the 18th Amendment has made them more prominent, made them more pronounced. Uh, so now this is the level of contestation, especially if you look at the local government systems, the local government acts, you'll see that all four provinces have now given more power to the provinces, uh, the local bodies and their powers as existed, uh, you know, under Musharraf, they have now been taken away. And the problem is more concentrated in Sindh, as I argued, because you have the MQM as a party, which is more entrenched, more powerful at the local level as compared to other provinces. So if you go down and look at the local government elections in Punjab, uh, in South Punjab especially, you do not have those Siraiki ethno-nationalist parties being as dominant, uh, as resourceful as the MQM. So these local bodies elections were swept away by the PMLN or the PTI, uh, whoever uh, you know was in power, by the PMLN especially when the elections took place at the time. Uh, again, uh, local government elections in the Hazara division and you had uh, the PTIA sweeping through it uh, the last time this, uh, that these took place. In Balochistan, again, the parties that were in power at the provincial level or even at the mainstream level, they were the ones who swept you know, the local bodies' elections. But that is not the case in Sindh because the MQM now stands to, in contrast to you know, the Pakistan People's Party, which is in power. And that is why, ironically, when you come to understand, uh, you know, the powers of the local government versus the power of provincial governments, you find that the talk is only about Karachi. Mm. Uh, it's not about Lahore. It is not about Peshawar. It is not about Quetta. So why is it a problem only in Karachi, the local bodies' powers or the power of the local bodies or local government systems? And that is because you have to impute this variable of a very powerful, dominant, uh, you know, political party, the MQM, which tends to make the case uh, for local bodies against uh, you know the provincial government and so and i want i want to get into karachi in just a bit but before i do that something couple of interesting things you mentioned one i want to you to briefly comment on the uniqueness and the importance of the charter of democracy because i think given so much time has passed people often forget how even though it was not fully implemented in the spirit of the document and you can people often quote like you agreed on these things but you never implemented them etc but it was a big step, right? And even though parts of it were implemented, they were transformative. So I want you to just, in the context of Pakistan since 1947, how big uh, of a shift was the, uh, was the Charter of Democracy? And then secondly, um, we've seen, you know, that the ethnic cleavages have sort of moved away from Punjabi versus everyone else down to the uniqueness of each province. But particularly in Punjab in recent years, we've seen that right around election times, you have the move towards a, a southern Punjab province and then political elites sort of come together, electables shift uh, to different parties that are about to win and then it dies away. Why is that the case? Because again, I find it as someone who grew up in Karachi pretty unique that 
consistently like, okay, you can do this once or twice as an elite to uh, horse trade and trade for power. Uh, but you haven't really seen uh, a sustained movement for a province out of there. And I was just curious to get your thoughts on those two things. Sure. Uh, Charter of Democracy, I think it's, uh, again, um, you know, a, a very important uh, landmark development in the context of how Pakistan's, you know, political history runs. And, uh, you know, when you speak about factors uh, which feed into, you know, the consolidation of democracy in any social and political context, it is absolutely important how political elites, despite being in opposition to each other, have a minimal consensus on the perpetuation of democracy. Uh, and that was not the case in Pakistan before the Charter of Democracy came about. So because we have lived uh, in a political system dominated by the military, and then in post-military phases, uh, uh, except for the 1970s, where you had the People's Party, which was relatively powerful and dominant, uh, uh, but but after the uh, after Ziaul Haq and uh, you know after his uh, you know death in 1988, the system that came about was a system uh, which in 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 a post military hegemonic context still had a, a strong leverage uh, of the military instituted within the political system, and that is again you know, the Eighth Amendment and Article 58 to be through which elected governments could be dismissed. So political elites at the time uh, were more interested in terms of overseeing that they, uh, uh, you know, perpetuate their uh, uh, time in power. Uh, they were willing, for example, uh, to dislodge, uh, you know, the government in power by making, you know, deals with the military or the opposition. Uh, and that was the entire you know, or of how, or, 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 you know, the way that politics, you know, ran in Pakistan at the time. Uh, and that is, uh, you know, the case of political elites in Pakistan from 47, let's say, up until 2006. And of course, when, you know, you have military regimes in power, uh, they are bringing their own uh, favored politicians, they're creating their own political parties, and they're minimizing, and they are, so to speak, excluding uh, politicians and political parties are opposed to them. So in that context, you know, the 2006 Charter of Democracy is absolutely important. So in, in, a, so, in a way, I, I sorry to interrupt you here, but I know you said that the PTI wasn't party to it, and that's why it sort of has issues with the 18th Amendment. But in a way, Imran Khan was then right when he says these two parties agreed to do mukmukka, but that mukmukka in a way is, was needed at that time because you cannot have political elites not agreeing to rules of the game in a democracy because otherwise you continue through the cycle of the 90s. Would that be a fair uh, statement? Yeah, meaning with the PTI, you see PTI is also a beneficiary of the 18th Amendment because if it was not for the 18th Amendment, uh, you know, the mileage, the political mileage that they gained out of the government that they formed uh, in KP in 2013, the reforms that they brought about in the police and the administration and the schools and health and education, all of this would not have transpired had it not been for the 18th Amendment. Uh, so I think uh, at a deeper level, they recognize uh, that the 18th Amendment was consequential in the success that they had at the provincial level, uh, which of course catapulted them into power at the national level in 2018. Uh, but on a more instrumental plane, uh, their criticisms of the 18th Amendment, again, are relative only to the Sindh province. Um, uh, so that is wherefore then the 18th Amendment does not work. But 
when it comes to the 18th amendment in balochistan or if there are problems in punjab or if there are problems in kp about provincial governments having in mon power there is uh, you know there's not much of a say within pti circles of how the 18th amendment operates in the rest of the three provinces whether it operates rightly whether it operates wrongly for them because now they are entrenched electorally in karachi you know with the last elections and because they are in a competitive uh, uh, you know relationship with the two traditional parties people's party and pmln so their criticisms of the 18th amendment is more instrumental i believe uh, rather than being very deeply embedded because again uh, it's a beneficiary it took advantage of the 18th amendment rather than being a victim of the 18th amendment so so let's uh, let's switch to karachi then you've done a lot of research you're from there i'm from there it's part of the mainstream discourse as we are speaking given the rains and the blockages and the transportation issues and there's a long list and we can talk about just the issues of karachi for a long long time but i want to um start with something that i was reading your paper on sort of muhajir elites and how they perceive sort of you know themselves and the isolation quote and quote that they faced in 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 karachi but one thing that was super interesting to me when i read that was and i did not know it until i read your paper was that it was actually butto himself who began this sort of uh, rural urban uh, sin dichotomy with the quota system and i want you to first explain that a bit and tell us again to the listener who probably does not have a deeper understanding of how did we get to karachi where the mqm was a dominant force then we can talk about what's happened in since 2008 onwards but you know why and how does uh, a the party of bhutto which now says that there will be no uh, taksim or uh, partition in urban and rural sin but it agreed to that partition back in the day so how did that happen in, in uh, at the first time yeah meaning the quota system is is really interesting and uh, you know the last piece that i wrote on muhajir ethnicity uh, i tend to uh, argue against the argument that the quota system really uh, discriminated against the muhajir so i put a question mark at the end of it uh, so again uh, for the muhajirs the quota system and uh, you know the division of sin into a rural and urban quota uh, disadvantaged them Uh, so that is number one so now you have karachi hyderabad and sakhar who are which are the urban areas the rest is all rural and this means that now the sindhis can come in and through their special quotas and that so to speak undermines um, you know the privileges of the muhajirs now if you look at the quota system in the way that it was uh, devised then uh, there was a you know uh, an additional 20% weightage of representation that was provided to the muhajirs uh so again they were 20% of the population uh and they were given a weightage of 40% so the division of the quota system into an urban and rural category is 40% urban and 60% rural and you so mean in sindh right in sindh in sindh because because there is no quota system in the rest of the provinces and that is the second criticism uh you know of the muhajir community or the ethno political elites that started uh, making claims against bhutto and the quota system that why do you not have these systems in the rest of the provinces now the interesting bit about um, you know the muhajir ethnicity is that despite the fact uh, that they made uh, you know a, a lot of criticism of the quota system uh my argument is that despite the quota system being in place there were still avenues for the muhajirs to get recruited into the bureaucracy 
And one simple, uh, you know, fact uh, that you can look at is the number of vacant seats that go from Karachi or from Sindh Urban. I mean, you know, uh, uh, Sindh Urban seats that go into, uh, you know, uh, the federal quota. Every year, a huge percentage of these seats are empty. Meaning you do not have enough you know, candidates who are coming into our federal bureaucracy on merit from sin urban areas. And what does this tell you? What this tells you is that a lot of these students from sin urban areas, you know, you could say a majority of them Muhajirs, they're now going into the private sector. And that has been the case since the 1980s. So what happened with, uh, you know, Bhutto's changes in the bureaucracy that once the power of the elite CSP was taken away, and the system of lateral entry was instituted, the bureaucracy and recruitment into the bureaucracy became less fashionable for you know, the Muhajir elites or even for the Muhajir you know, public at large. So if I can tell you about myself in the 90s when I was graduating from the University of Karachi, a lot of people, you know, students around, the, we, just, we were not interested you know, going for CSS. The reason because maybe the perks, the privileges, bureaucratization, progress, corruption, right? So it was not the best, you know, profession that you would want to go to. So it was more fashionable and more privileged, let's say before, Bhutto introduced his overall reforms, not just the quota system, but it became less fashionable, you know, for a lot of people in Karachi after the 80s and 90s. And again, the argument was that the bureaucracy has become politicized. So in, in a way, in a way, the MNC or the bank or whatever that was headquartered yeah. in Karachi became a more lucrative option. Exactly. If you were yeah. educated and coming from yeah. that type of background. Right? Exactly. You could go into academia, you could go into the legal profession, you could go into journalism. So that sort of avenues were still open for the Muhajir elites. But of course, uh, you know, the MQM and, you know, Hussain and others, when they formed APMSO, when they formed the MQM, they made this quota system as the basis of, you know, their ethno-political mobilization. But again, we have to see the kind of linkages that develop, you know, that are there down at the local level. And of course, the kind of discourses that are being framed by ethno-political elites. There are always disjunctures there. But anyway, the MQM fed upon it. Right. And that helped it mobilize through the 80s, through the 90s. But now what has happened with the MQM uh, is starting the 2000s. Uh, it is suffering from what you can call as a, you know, a crisis of discourse legitimation. So it's empowerment in the 2000s when it became part of Musharraf's local government system, when it was embedded at the local level, when it was embedded at the provincial level, when it was embedded at the federal level. So its empowerment did not go around with its traditional discourse of deprivation and discrimination. And that, that is where you see in the 2013 elections, you had the PTI making big inroads into Karachi. It won more than a million votes in places, you know, constituencies such as Azizabad, Gulshan Iqbal, North Karachi, you know, the, the PTI won 40, 50, 60,000 votes. Uh, so the MQM's, uh, you know, discourse of deprivation, discrimination, the fact that the quota system disadvantages them, or in fact, the quota system disadvantages the entire, you know, Muhajir population in Karachi, this now stands challenged. And that is where the lot of, they lot, uh, you know, they, they lost their, uh, you know, electoral strength, they, they lost their power of discourse, 
uh, and the fact that the muhajis are always deprived, they're always discriminated. And this is now what they're trying to, so to speak, resuscitate in present circumstances with these tensions between you know, the local government systems and the local body systems and the provincial government. So that is think, now returning. Yeah, I would just add here, I think that's an interesting point of, you know, that the deprivation narrative did not um, hold as much resonance with a younger generation as, as it did in previous years. I would also just add here that, you know, as someone who grew up in that Karachi and was born in 1988, so obviously the history, historical link about deprivation wasn't there, which is a very important point. But also, like many of my generation were also sick and tired of the violence in the city, yes. right? And a violence and a mafia type control and organization that we were sick and tired of. And even though MQM as a party where you could be from the middle class and get to the top and, you know, it wasn't dynastic barring, you know, you had to profess allegiance to Altar Hussain mm -hmm. for your entire life. Um, there were a lot mm -hmm. of middle class educated folks in it, but the violence of it, the fact that you could only get up the party by collecting bhatta and by collecting uh, animal khale and all of that, that Eid and doing all sorts of shady stuff was for a younger generation was like, I don't need to do that. This is crazy. I don't want to kill people. And I think as the violence perpetuated and you saw like a bloody time between 2006 onwards and 2013-14, it really was, I would say, uh, uh, an accelerant of the decline of the party because not only was its narrative not there, um, the mm. violence made a lot of people reconsider their options. And as you said, the PTI was emerging at that time as a party that was challenging Altavs. And I don't know how whether you agree with Absol that or not. Absolutely true. Meaning, uh, I'm often asked this question about violence in Karachi. And, and for someone who's seen the violence in Karachi in the 90s, when you had an operation against the MQM and uh, the violence that was seen after 2010, uh, I think what happened in Karachi after 2010 is that violence, so to speak, uh, you know, trickled down at the very lowest of levels. Uh, so, you know, you could not go out, you know, feeling safe and secure because of, you know, crime and extortion or your, you know, mobile or your wallet. Anyone could come in from anywhere on a bike and, you know, steal valuables from you. And that was something, uh, you know, which was not part of how Karachi ran in the 80s and the 90s. So the trickling down of violence down at the level where, uh, you know, you felt very unsafe, uh, that you felt very insecure. And of course, that feeds into the entire political economy of land, uh, right? Uh, in which the NQM, in which, you know, you know, the, the groups in Liari, uh, even the, uh, you know, uh, the religious groups, the TTP, for example, in Karachi made a lot of money out of. Uh, so that, so to speak, uh, you know, meant that Karachi became an absolute mess. And again, for a younger generation, and of course, for people who had seen violence for the last 30 years, uh, they just could not, uh, you know, come around to the fact uh, that, uh, you know, that this violence needs to continue. And that is where PTI offered a fresher alternative, speaking about service delivery, speaking about the problems of Karachi, speaking about ending violence, speaking about instituting, uh, 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 you know, regularities in the way that the entire city works. So yes, of course, uh, meaning for this generation and of course for people living in Karachi for the last 30, 35 years, this violence, crime, extortion, the fact that, you know, uh, the city could just shut down, you know, on a single call by, you know, Al-Taf Hussain and the MQM leadership. So that is something that they were very sick and tired of. And of course, 
you know that is very very important in terms of understanding of how the entire uh, you know discourse of the NQM became you know less attractive and how the PTI offered a much fresher alternative to the stale politics of the NQM. So as someone who studied the city and its its political economy deeply, now we are in a situation where obviously the PTI won a lot of votes from Karachi. It holds a lot of power, particularly at the federal level because of Karachi and the seats it got through Karachi. But it doesn't have that power at the provincial level, which reduces its leverage in terms of what it can do to get the Sindh government to devolve power, so to speak, to Karachi itself. How do you see this playing out? Because it is a very unique dynamic within the Pakistani political economy where you have the beating hub of the economy and the most populous city of the country basically in the dumps, if I can be blunt about it, um, where the ruling party in the center in Islamabad derives a lot of power um, from its support within that city but it can't really do anything meaningful with that power to improve the lives of the voters who voted for it and two years have passed since they were elected. So how do you see this playing out in sort of the more elite uh, bickering and power brokering that occurs in Pakistani politics like any other democracy? How does how does the situation become better for the people of Karachi given this yeah. setup? Yeah, meaning it's Karachi is, is again a truly fascinating you know case study and now you have a you know, tripolar structure of power, you know, within Karachi. Uh, and again, if you extend it to Sin, so uh, local bodies elections, it entrenched the NQM. Uh, the general elections entrenched uh, the PTI, which is again a magnificent sea change from the last 30 years, because at a point in time in Karachi, you know, you, you, would, you would hear, you know, uh, the conventional wisdom that, you know, that there's no alternative to the NQM. So that changed radically in 2018. Uh, and of course, the PTI is, of course, the party in power at the federal level. But then you have uh, the People's Party, which is in power at the provincial level. And this, you know, tripolar structure uh, and power game, uh, you know, determines why Karachi continues to be in a mess even today. Uh, so, uh, the sentiment on the ground, if I can tell you on the sentiment on the ground in Karachi today is uh, that at a ideational level, uh, or, you know, the NQM is making a comeback. Uh, so now uh, the NQM is trying to gain as much political mileage out of the fact uh, that, you know, you see the recent rains and, you know, the garbage issues and all the, you know, administrative mess that is, uh, you know, created in Karachi. And now people on the ground are saying that because you do not have the NQM in power at the city level, especially when it comes to, you know, the local elections, uh, the People's Party is free to do whatever they want to do. And the PTI, because it is tasting power for the first time, it is still struggling to find its feet politically. It does not have the political experience. It cannot resolve the problems of Karachi right, in the same manner that the NQM was able to do in the 2000s. And so I would really quickly add here that yeah. it, it's oh, one other important part that came to my mind is that unlike the MQM, which still even in decline has a very robust grassroots network in the city, yeah. the PTI yeah. does not have anything comparable, exactly. right? Exactly. So it, it, it's yeah. also a disconnect at the very grassroots level there. Exactly. exactly. And again, you know, you have local bodies elections taking place 
you know, you'll have elections, local election bodies taking place at a certain moment in time. And it remains to be seen if, let's say, the PTI, you know, wins as magnificently as it won, you know, the uh, provincial and the national elections in 2018, that again will be a manifest sea change. But then again, that seems unlikely. So now what is happening is a battle of wills is taking place between all these three different parties. So look at the MQM. So the MQM never had a slogan of a separate province, right? So back in the day, you know, 70s, early 80s, you had Azim Ahmed Tariq writing a pamphlet that, you know, this Karachi should be made a separate province. But, you know, it, is, it has never been a major slogan for the MQM. So, so they said, no, we do not want to make Karachi a separate province. We want local government systems to become more efficient, become more resourceful. And that is what their politics was. But now the MQM is embracing the slogan of a separate province. And the reason why they're doing it is because they're in political contestation with the People's Party, but not only with the People's Party, but also with the PTI. So the alliance between the MQM and PTI is not a very, it's, it's a very uneasy alliance. Look at what the PTI is doing is because now it is finding it difficult, uh, you know, to go around and resolve the problem with the people. The talk now is of, you know, giving Karachi back to, uh, you know, back as a federal subject or, or, or being governed from, you know, the center because the problems are so huge that, you know, you need a, a federally mandated system of governance in Karachi. So that is PTI's answer. And of course, the People's Party, which again is champion, championing provincial autonomy. And now, uh, you know, developments from two days back where they've created a new, uh, you know, district uh, in Kemari in order to show or in order to demonstrate their own power. So, so what is happening is, is, is they're finding it very difficult, all these three parties, to bring in a formula of reconciliation in place. So again, NQM, we want a new province, but that does not work with the way the People's Party and PTI view things. PTI, we want a federally mandated system because that will resolve all the problems. And the People's Party interested in, you know, uh, resisting and, you know, taking on, uh, you know, the power or the electoral representation of both the NQM and the PTI as it exists in Karachi. So it's a very, you know, strange, you know, muddle and complexity of, you know, a battle of wills between these three parties uh, and the consequence of all of it is that you know the people of Karachi suffer and again you know they have to find, find a formula of reconciliation they have to find a formula where they can divide powers and that came around by the way in 2012 you see when uh, the people's party and the MPM got together in framing a local government ordinance and that uh, was a time when People's Party was still pursuing political reconciliation with the NQM. And you had a sort of in 2013 with the PMLN in power, a party that kind of wanted to grow its influence in Karachi, but didn't really have any stakes who could be a neutral broker, right? In, in exactly. so many ways. Exactly, exactly. So it's not the fact that they cannot come together and devise a formula. They did that in 2012. But then again, you know, the People's Party, because it wanted to outbid the Sindhi Nationalist parties in the 2013 elections, it, so to speak, disbanded that local government ordinance where, you know, there was a power distribution formula between the provincial government and the local government. And then they empowered the local, uh, the provincial government more. And then, you know, so it's, it's become a game of sticks. Um, people down at the bottom are suffering. 
and you know the recent uh, so to speak the fact that karachi is suffering this is once again feeding into uh, you know a nostalgia uh, on the part of people in karachi as i see it for the mqm uh, for yep. the fact that and then the mqm, MQM that and an MQM that's rebranding itself and disowned Altaf Hussain, right? So that's exactly. my earlier point on the gener younger generation sort of exactly. not being okay with exactly. that. That's, that point isn't there anymore. Exactly. And it's about doing a, you know, politics of service delivery. And of course, you know, creating a balance of power vis-a-vis -vis the People's Party. So, yeah, so, so it's that kind of sentiment that is gaining ground. And that's interesting. And I mean, you know, I've made that point just, you know, we typically on this podcast talk about the economy. And the fact is that you cannot have a economy that is growing sustainably where its metropolis and its economic hub is as dysfunctional as Karachi is, because guess what? All the exports go through there. All the big industrial estates are there. All the headquarters yeah. are there. So if that city is struggling with its political economy, the whole country is going to struggle, which is why it's important to talk about the issues. And in many ways, what I'm gathering from you is going back to where we began initially, that in a way you need a charter of democracy for Karachi yeah. itself yeah. Um, and some sort of agreement that includes the PTI for this uh, at this point in time, at least. Um, I want to move on to our second topic, which I was reading about your work on it, which again, people have a very shallow understanding of, which is Balochistan and its governance and inclusion challenges, right? And in your research, like I read that you wrote about how the movement has sort of shifted from being one that is driven again uh, because of deprivation and, and secessionist tendencies from 1947 onwards to in the post 2000 and the 21st century essentially um, become one that is mainly driven by economic deprivation. And I want you to explain what that shift is and how that's occurred and uh, what's going on in Balochistan at this point, uh, given that, again, you've had the 18th Amendment where power actually has been dissolved in a way to the Balochistan government. Yeah, meaning very quickly, if you if you look at the history of Balochistan, you have, you know, five separate insurgencies. Uh, and the present one, which is the fifth one, it's, it's now going on for the last 20 years, which makes it, uh, you know, one of the longest sustained periods of insurgency uh, you know, within Balochistan since 1947. So if you come around from 47 to 2000, what you see in Balochistan uh, is you have a princely state of Kalat, uh, which is gearing towards independence. It actually announces its independence on the 15th of August, 1947. Uh, and this means that for a further nine months, which is March, 1948, it virtually remains independent until the Khan of Kalat uh, signs an instrument of accession which makes Kalat a part of, uh, you know, the state of Pakistan. But the interesting bit about the entire, you know, ethno-political movement in Balochistan is that it has always been, you know, uh, uh, inhibited by, uh, you know, internal divisions. So even at the time when Kalat was making its case for, you know, independence, uh, British Balochistan, you know, Kuwait and its adjoining territories, it joined Pakistan. Uh, the tribal areas, which are Murray and Bukti, designated by the colonial authorities, you know, they joined Pakistan. Uh, you can still see an image of a very young, you know, Nawab Akbar Bukti shaking hands with Muhammad Ali Jinnah, right? Uh, and again, it was opposed to the, you know, the autonomous and independent politics of the Kalat state. Haran Makran Lasbela in the south, they joined Pakistan. So, these so in a way, sorry to interrupt you here, but 
you know, in a way, a lot of people think that the Khan of Kalat not deciding to join Pakistan was the will of the entire Balochistan province. But um, that's not no. true. There was a lot of divisions there that people yes, exactly. don't really talk about. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And uh, if you see now that the way that Baloch nationalism has evolved since then, uh, the, the politics of the Kalat state has, you know, so to speak, paled into insignificance. Uh, and other actors and sardars and, you know, elites in the middle class, they have now come into the open. So if you take up Akbar Bukti, you know, he was the Minister of State for Defense in 1958 when, uh, you know, the sec- when the martial law was imposed. And of course, the martial law was imposed on grounds that the Kalat state was planning for secession. And there's a very interesting, you know, narration which the Khan of Kalat talks about in his autobiography of how all of that panned out at the time. Uh, you know, the 70s, Akbar Bukti, you know, was the governor of Balochistan. He was not part, you know, of the civil war, of the insurgency, you know, that took place at the time. But in 2000s, uh, and now today, you cannot speak of, you know, ethno-political or ethno-nationalism in Balochistan without putting you know, Akbar Bukti at the very top of it because, you know, he was assassinated and he was killed, uh, you know, by Musharraf. Uh, So these internal divisions are very profound. And uh, the insurgencies, and this is my argument, that from 47 to 2000, that these insurgencies were all a consequence of political factors. Um, Not that the economic factors were not there, but it was mainly political factors. So Kalat joining Pakistan. Uh, or not, that found the insurgency. Uh, and again, it was very minuscule in 48. 58, again, the Khan of Kalat plotting for independence, a political act. In the 60s, uh, you know, under Ayub Khan, they tried to change the Sardars of, you know, even Marvis and especially the Mingles as well. That did not work out, again, political. 70s, Bhutto dismissed, uh, you know, the NAP government in 1973. Again, a political act which fomented the insurgency. But in the 2000s, especially with the state's development, uh, you know, narrative, uh, you know, talk about Gavadar and, you know, talk about Rekodek and the fact that development and socioeconomic development, you know, forms uh, such an important facet of how, you know, the Pakistani state sees Balochistan developing, you know, in the near to the long term future has now meant that it is economics, which is now the driving point of, uh, uh, you know, the insurgency. So again, uh, you know, around 2003, 2004, it was shaped over, you know, the royalties from, uh, you know, the PPL, which is part of the Dera Bukti area. Um, again, it was a very localized dispute, which became a Baloch nationalist dispute because we were not able to, you know, put, uh, you know, compromise and reconciliation into place at the time. Uh, if you ask this argument that whether Akbar Bukti was a secessionist, uh, not true, because till the very end, he was open to negotiation with the Pakistani state. So now because of CPEC, uh, now because of the Gawadar port, uh, economics is very important. You take a Brekodek, for example, uh, and you had an interesting, you know, uh, you know, uh, kind of politics and, you know, the way that it worked there, because under provincial autonomy, you know, uh, after the 18th Amendment, uh, you know, the Supreme Court argued that it is the provincial government which should determine the negotiations between, you know, the company, which was TTC, and, uh, and, and you know, again, Pakistan is now facing prospects of, 
you know, of paying, I think, billions of dollars, dollars, yeah. billions of yeah. dollars in penalty. Uh, so again, um, you know, in terms of empowering Balochistan, yes, uh, their share in the national treaty has increased after the 7th NFC award. Uh, there are now more resources flowing down uh, to the provinces. But I think uh, in terms of what they can get, uh, and in terms especially of political alienation, uh, that still continues to resonate in Balochistan. And now, uh, you know, the ethno-political movement itself, uh, it's, it's trickled down, down to the masses, and especially the middle classes. Uh, so, you know, if you could look at the statements of uh, Allah Nazar Baloch, who commands the BLF, uh, and his statements, uh, you know, before the 2018 elections, he came out with a statement asking the Baloch not to vote for an elections, and very critical of the Sardars, saying that the Sardars have sold out Balochistan, uh, they did not really interested in the development of Balochistan, very critical of the late Hassel Bizinjo, and, you know, all of these accommodationist politics who want who think that provincial autonomy can work and Balochistan can progress that way. So there is a difference of, you know, narratives and, and differences of strategies between the secessionists who want, you know, complete independence and the accommodationists who want to work out a formula, you know, within the Pakistani, within the territorial confines of the Pakistani state. And they believe there is room there. Uh, plus also the fact that the secessionists themselves are also divided within, you know, between the UPA and BLA and others. Um, uh, yeah, so there's, there's, there's a fair bit of division there. And uh, again, you can find some, uh, you know, room for reconciliation as well. For example, if you go by, uh, go down to 2015, for example, uh, and this is right at the anniversary of, uh, uh, you know, uh, Nawab Akbar Bukti's assassination in August 2015, Ramda Bukti actually said that he's open for negotiations with the Pakistani state. Um, if you look back at his one of his statements in 2018, um, uh, you know, about two years back, he again states that, you know, the reason why the Baloch uh, resorted to arms is because the political formula of how Balochistan should be governed, there's a big flaw there. So it's not that Secession is something of a goal as much as, you know, if there is a political reconciliation in which, you know, financial resources coming in from CPAC, others can be redistributed between the center and the Balochistan, the Baloch government, and that kind of a formula worked out, you know, that is something that they can work with. Uh, and again, he's, he's, he's critical, of course, of, the, of centering Kalat, you know, as the center of nationalist politics, because... You know, the book piece. So, so it's that kind of internal divisions that's mm. still in here. And uh, again, uh, the economics of how, uh, you know, Balochistan, you know, is positioned at the center of CPEC and everything, that I think is more important these days. And how effective do you think, um, or ineffective do you think, was the <clears throat> Balochistan package that was announced a few years ago? I think it was under the People's Party government, if I'm recalling correctly at this point. It was a big moment, I think, again, in terms of taking a step towards reconciliation. And the NFC award obviously was a continuation of that. We have another NFC negotiation coming up. But again, I think going back to your earlier point, right, you sort of said the 18 amendments shifted away from Punjabi dominated elite dominating everyone else towards more power towards the provinces. So that opens doors for 
interesting measures to reconcile the differences between places like Balochistan, Karachi, etc. But specifically in the Baloch context, like, do you think that that Balochistan package was effective in communicating and signaling a shift of the Pakistani state towards how it deals with the Baloch people? Yeah, I think I think it was uh, because uh, you know if you look down to the provisions of the Aghazi-Hukuk-e-Balochistan package, uh, the number of scholarships, for example, for Baloch students were increased, and they have increased over time. Uh, even the representation of the Baloch into the military and the bureaucracy, there's a provision for there as well, and you know the numbers are increasing slightly. Uh, in terms of paying arrears or royalties of gas. Uh, that has come around into Balochistan. But again, in terms of meaning a, a more holistic package of how, uh, you know, political parties or political elites in you know, Balochistan are satisfied, this uh, again remains a challenge. And the reason why this remains a challenge is because the insurgency still continues. And uh, what this means is that when it comes to, um, you know, a certain amount of collateral, uh, damage from the Pakistani state that feeds into the grievances even more, number one. Uh, and another important element in terms of, uh, you know, uh, impacting political grievances in Balochistan is, is the electoral process. And there's a major gap between how, uh, you know, political processes shift at the elite level in Balochistan and how there is a serious disconnect, you know, between people down at the local level. So in 2017, for example, when you had the emergence of a new provincial setup, a new party, the Balochistan Awami Party, and uh, you know you had a sudden change, uh, you know, at the elite level, at the provincial level. A lot of questions not, were raised about where this party came up from. Exactly right, right, and that did not sync with you know with the people down at the bottom, and you know people down at the bottom knew what 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 is happening. Right, uh, and that kind of uh, you know politics still manifests Balochistan more radically as they do other parts of uh, Balochistan, uh, as they do other parts of Pakistan. Right, so with the new political dispensation, again, um, you know, uh, it, people in Balochistan are fairly critical because um, you know the Sardars and the elites who are in power. Uh, they still appropriate a lot of money, a lot of power, a lot of resources and privileges to themselves, number one. But then you have a party like Akhtar Mengans, uh, who uh, are more sensitive towards the locals, they're more sensitive towards the center as well. Uh, but the push and pull between the center and you know the bottom uh, or, or the local grievances is where they find it difficult. Uh, of how to go about with it. So again, uh, you know, they uh, stood in elections. Uh, they are represented at the center, but because now, uh, you know, the insurgency, if you, if you see in the last two years, uh, the intensity of the insurgency is increasing. Uh, and this means that it makes it difficult for these parties such as Akhtar Mengals to, uh, you know, do a kind of politics in which they can tell the people at the bottom that there's something good or something beneficial which is coming to them. So it's that kind of a disjuncture, that, that kind of a, uh, you know, how do you say it, a disjuncture especially, which is coming around, uh, which makes it difficult for these Baloch uh, political parties to pacify the masses. And I think again, <clears> like, is, so, uh, you know, in a way from the perspective of even Karachi and Balochistan, like you cannot have the largest 
province in size like in Pakistan, in a state like Pakistan, be the center of an insurgency and expect the economy to progress. And I think that's why it's important to reconcile and move forward uh, rather than backward. But I think there's also another disjuncture, speaking of those that comes to my mind, is that if you increase the scholarships and academic participation and opportunities for the middle class to be part of the state, those people, especially younger students in particular, uh, will be more outspoken about what they perceive as exclusions or oppression or whatever else the way they may want to describe it, they may be more outspoken for that. And if the state is more reactive towards that, then it only cements their and the masses perspective of um, the oppression that has, in a way, been perceived over a long period of time, and many of which is a fair uh, critique of how the state has handled this situation. But I think that's also an important dysfunction there, right? Because as a growing middle class that is educated, understands its rights and perceives its rights in a certain way, constitutionally, it will express itself more. And if the state's reaction is, well, there's an insurgency going on, so we're going to clamp down on it and silence dissent, um, that that only then fuels the fire to begin with. Yeah, meaning, you see, you were speaking about, uh, you know, the accommodationists and separatists and uh, or the secessionists, and they having different political strategies of how to, you know, resolve the problem in, of Balochistan, either go independent or either, you know, work towards provincial autonomy. The one thing which is constant, you know, between both these streams is the discourse of grievances. Right. So for any Baloch, whether who dreams of an independent Balochistan or who speaks about, you know, uh, recruiting himself into the bureaucracy or getting education, you ask them about the grievances and the narrative and the discourse will be the same. Uh, so that needs to change. Number one. Number two. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, you know, you, you, you have the middle class, which is. Uh, you know, in Pakistan today, because you speak about also of a younger generation, you also speak about 60% of the population being part of this, you know, younger generation. And uh, uh, that sense of resentment and grievances, uh, you know, feeds into how the Baloch feel. Uh, the Pakistani state, you know, has treated them since 1947. Uh, but then again, uh, you know, there's still a sizable number who are coming into universities for example, Kaidiazm universities who are getting their education, you know, who dream about recruiting themselves into the bureaucracy, who give these, you know, CSS exams and provincial service exams. So yes, you know, if you talk to them, you know, the, the, the grievances or the discourse of grievances, you know, will be manifest. Uh, but, you know, in terms of, you know, caring about their life or, you know, thinking about families and parents and brothers and sisters, um, uh, you know, they, you know, they take, um, uh, you know, they look towards scholarships, they look towards employment, you know, they look towards opportunities, uh, which any middle class, you know, family person or individual in Pakistan would look at. Uh, so again, and as long as these opportunities continue to persist in the system, which they are, uh, I think uh, these opportunities for reconciliation uh, you know, that you're speaking of, they, they, they will continue to be there within, within the political system and the social system at large. 
Well, this has been a fascinating discussion and I'm mindful of time. So before I let you go, um, what are two or three books that you recommend listeners pick up and read? It can be on any topic, but um, I always ask my guests to share two or three books that you know are worth reading for folks tuning in. Right. Uh, so one book that I've read, read uh, recently, this is uh, Samuel Huntington's Who Are We? Uh, and I think this is, uh, you know, a very interesting read, especially in the context of, uh, you know, all the racial conflict uh, and the racial on the racist violence and, you know, white majoritarianism, if you will, uh, that, uh, you know, inflicts the U.S. today. So that is an interesting book that I read recently. Uh, much of what I read is also has to do with uh, what I'm writing at uh, a particular moment in time. Uh, so for uh, so I wrote this recent article on political parties and political culture, and I revisited, um, you know, um, this very classical text by Gabriel Almond and Sidney Verbo on political culture and how, uh, you know, cultural values that, you know, democracy is not about only about electoral systems or procedures or institutions but it is also about cultural norms and values, uh, you know, that feed into the systems in, uh, you know, consolidation of democracy. So that was one book, which was, uh, you know, it was a good book to revisit uh, after a long time and base my arguments around it. Another one is uh, on nation building. This is by Andrew Swimmer, uh, in which he explains how countries come together and how they fall apart. And again, this is very uh, important in the context of, you know, especially in the past five, six years when you've had independence referendums in Scotland and, uh, you know, in Catalonia and also Iraqi Kurdistan and how the developed and developing countries are becoming inflicted with this rising wave of, uh, you know, ethno-nationalism uh, within their countries. So it's an interesting read about how nation building and the dilemma of nation building inflicts the developed and developing states. Yeah, those sound like interesting reads, particularly Huntington's, because the famed author of The Clash of Civilizations, yeah. and we're at an, another inflection point. Yes. And yeah. the ethno-nationalist one is also important as a topic to visit, because almost to the day, right, like a century later, the a new wave of ethno-nationalism yeah. is rising around the world, which yeah. we saw in the run-up to World War One. So thank you so much for your time. This has been a fascinating discussion. I really appreciate you joining us. Um, to all the listeners tuning in, thank you for tuning in yet again. We'll see you next week. Thank you very much, Jose. My pleasure being here. Thank you very much.